Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Welcome back to another edition of the Bible study at the beginning of the world. This is going to be Mark chapter 2. I have been reading through from the Common English Translation. Today I'm going to have a look at um, David Bentley Hart's translation. David Bentley Hart, Greek Orthodox scholar, fiery individual, well worth a look, absolutely brilliant, cranky, just the sort of man you need when the world is collapsing around you. So David Bentley Hart has done his translation and one of the fun things about him is that he has preserved the the different flavors of the different gospels quite well. A lot of translation, when it's done by committee or some individuals, tend to flatten out all the differences. But when you read Bentley Hart's translation, the different gospels really do have a different voice. And they do seem to reflect the different personalities and uh, even literary skill levels of the different authors so it's it's good it's good fun it's worth having a look one of the things that really comes out in mark i mentioned last episode that mark uses the word immediately a lot and he's quite choppy and sharp and something that comes out in translations like bentley hearts is that um you get a sense that Mark reads a little bit more like somebody telling a story. You can imagine a man standing in front and maybe somebody like Peter telling the story to a crowd of people who, and he's, he's relating well-known stories to them. And you get a sense of that in, in Mark that sometimes the narrative change quickly or the tenses change. It'll be, present tense and then past tense and then back to present tense and this is idea that somebody's telling a story in the moment and it's just worth paying attention to the fact that you know we don't know for sure who wrote mark but we do know that it's an ancient ancient early text there's good claim that it's coming out of an eyewitness testimony or eyewitness culture and it makes sense to think that the stuff that we get is coming from People who knew Jesus and tradition and scholarship can make some firm connection or some good connections to Peter here. But of course, none of this stuff is absolutely rock solid fact. But we're, we're relying on the fact that um, the culture of the early church was people who knew Jesus were then gathering together or gathering other people around them and trying their best to form themselves in Christ like ways according to the kingdom. And you see that in the Apostle Paul, who's the earliest writer we have of Christian writing. You can see in his communities that they are starting to or already adopting a lot of the kingdom principles that we're seeing in the Gospels. And the Gospels were written a generation after the events, at least a generation after the events being described. So uh, by the time... Mark is being written down, it might be as late as uh, the 60s, the 60s or the late 70s. We're not sure exactly when. There's a whole industry about trying to date it. But if Jesus is doing his stuff in the 30s, 
and Mark was written down in the 60s or later, what you get is a culture of people who, a generation at least, has been in the church, and they have their elder disciple figures, their elder witnesses, are now dying. And you can tell that there seems to be this idea of, oh boy, we better write this stuff down. We better capture this stuff. And what has been done in an oral tradition, what has been the famous and well-known anecdotes and stories that have been told again and again and again to the culture are now being captured in print. This is one possible way of thinking about the description or the construction of these texts. And uh, so it seems that the Mark text is coming out of a community that has told these stories to each other for a long time. And sometimes there's even a sense of old favourites being told or funny little details being mentioned. And I'll probably bring those up as I go. But anyway, oh, it's also worth paying attention to the fact that if Peter is the the eyewitness to Mark, if Peter is the one of the main sources to any of these stories that we have, then it's fascinating to look at the role that Peter plays in the Gospels because, well, think about it. Peter, as a human, as a man, would have been a great celebrity in the church, a great figure. Well, when there's a church meeting in somebody's house and then Peter walks in, right, all, uh, all eyes would turn to him, people would, would want to sit next to him. After he'd left, people would probably go, oh, I, I touched Peter on the shoulder, or did you see that? He was kind to me. and He knew Jesus, and, uh, and now he's talked to me. And Just the same way we treat our Christian celebrities with with reverence and we, we build up a big bubble around them and we think of them and we tell we swap stories and anecdotes about the times that we met various famous Christian leaders. Well, imagine if that is, imagine if you'd known Jesus yourself. Imagine if you had been there. Just think what kind of celebrity bubble you'd be moving around in, inside your worshipping communities. And then think, what does Peter do to his celebrity bubble? Basically, Peter in the Gospels, and definitely in Mark, comes across as one of the biggest idiots of them all. Pretty much any time Peter says something, he says it wrongly. Pretty much any time he does something, he does it wrongly. Peter stands in as the archetypical disciple, and he also represents the disciples who get it wrong all the time. So it tells me one fun thing about Peter, that if he is the original source for this stuff, then he also is puncturing his own bubble. You guys think I was so great? Let me tell you how it really went down. And he's showing humility, I think, in his allowing himself to be recast as the dunderhead of the story. He's not the villain, but he's dunderhead. He's an idiot. He gets it wrong all the time. This also brings up something about Mark and discipleship. Mark is a book about discipleship. It's about following. It's about, remember, faith means follow me. Faith means have allegiance to me. Don't be ashamed to be with me. Uh, which is why, by the way, Peter's betrayal is going to be so big because he's ashamed to be with Jesus. But... Uh, the, the point of Mark is, is it seems to be a manual for discipleship, trying to remind 
second, third generation Christians how to be a disciple, what it felt like to actually be around Jesus, and what sort of reaction or emotions or actions are expected of someone who is faced with the short, sharp shock of Jesus before them. And that's how Mark seems to recast or cast his idea of discipleship. Lots of immediate actions, lots of following, lots of leaving everything you have to follow. A lot of that kind of activity. And look at how the people that do that, quite often in the Gospel of Mark, the people that show discipleship aren't actually the disciples. The people that show discipleship time and time again in the Gospel of Mark are foreign women and demon-possessed men and children and all sorts of foreigners and tax collectors, basically all sorts of the wrong sort of people are shown as the right kind of disciple. And the right side of people, the ones in the inner circle, they're time and time again portrayed as negative examples. So this tells me something about the culture of Mark's church. It suggests the kind of culture that he was uh, attempting to disciple and to speak against. And it also tells you what kind of people were trying to be promoted within the early church and how important that was. Again, like I said, the social political aspects of the early church cannot be divorced from the Gospels. The Gospels are all about jostling for power and what you do with it and how close you are to centres of power and what you should do if you find yourself in one. And this is not something that is separate to what the gospel is. In lots of ways, this is the gospel. This is the sort of life that Jesus led, who was demonstrating by his life that he was releasing people from what binds them. He was attacking centers of power, centers of locked down habit and custom, and he's releasing people into the open air. And he's bringing them into a new kingdom which is forming around him. And this is what Mark calls the good news. The news that the rightful king has broken the siege. Chapter 2. And again, entering into Capernaum, after some days it was heard that he, Jesus, was in a house. And many gathered so that there was not even room before the door, and he spoke the word to them. And now here comes the famous story of the paralytic man, who is let down through the roof by his four friends. So there's a whole crowd of people. By the way, the word crowd is the word oklos. It's a Greek word. And the oklos are a character in this story. And I mentioned earlier in the last episode that you're starting to see the rise of popularity and the popular mob as one of the characters in this story. And in fact, they're, they're going to become an enemy, but they're not really yet. And the word oklos is a word that you would use not for any group of people, but more for the savagely illiterate or the, the, the unruly mob. Uh, and they, the idea was that the oklos were Jewish, but they were illiterate. They were so poor they couldn't read or know how to read. They didn't have the law. So Pharisees said that if you mix with the oklos, you are unclean because the oklos didn't have the law even though they were ethnically Jewish. And the Oclos, uh, sometimes they were called uh, like soldiers without a general, or Jesus refers to them at one time as sheep without a shepherd. And the idea here is that there's this 
crowd of people, a rather chaotic crowd swarming after Jesus. And it wants its own things. It doesn't, sometimes it loves Jesus and sometimes it wants Jesus for wrong reasons. And as we'll see, this will be one of the crowds, this will be one of the enemies that turns against Jesus as well. But they were an unstable lot. If you could command the Oklos, uh, you could have a viable claim for ruling. They were like these group of people that were just easily led and waiting for a leader. And these are the same crowd that wants to make Jesus king by force in the Gospel of John, for example, after he feeds them. So you see what kind of crowd it is. And this is a crowd, the Oklos are associated with Jesus all the time. So again, Jesus is impure every time this crowd is around him. So the crowd is around Jesus and nobody could get in. And so what happens is some friends have to tear the fibers, the, the reed matting off the roof and they let their paralytic friend down. Now, there's two things about this thing. First of all, the paralytic man is seen, he's, something's gone wrong uh, in the cultural imagination. There's something gone wrong with him. There's impurity in his life, him or his parents. And so that's why he's paralyzed. So the, the paralyzed makes him impure or is revelation of his impurity. So he's been, he would have been ostracized or on the edges of society. And the fact that he has four friends tells you something about those people. It tells you that they are willing to be to be with him um there's something good about them they're brave they're associating with this guy even though in some ways he's beyond the pale so they tear down the ceiling and they let him down and jesus verse 5 seeing their faith says to the paralytic your sins are forgiven so what's going on here Jesus, seeing their faith, says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Well, remember that faith is not describing the four friends who have visualized the healing of their friend with crystal clarity in their mind. They haven't screwed up their inner resources and wished hard enough. They're not holding in their mind the image of their friend walking and not allowing any doubt to creep in. What they're doing is they're having faith in Jesus. They so much want to be seen to be with him that they are going to tear a building apart to get there. And Jesus, seeing their willingness to be with him, turns to their friend and says, I'm going to make you clean. And the Pharisees are reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak? He blasphemes. Who can forgive sins except God alone? Remember, being ill and having unforgiven sins and being unclean, these are all synonymous terms. And Jesus, immediately aware in his spirit that they were reasoning, says to them, why do you say these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and take your mat and walk? But in order that you should know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins on earth, I say to you, rise, take up your mat, and go to your house. Um, sometimes you get preachers saying, oh, what if uh, the, the paralyzed man um, thought that he needed to be 
healed, but what Jesus tells him is that what he really needs is his sin forgiven. And you might have heard that before, you might have heard people say that kind of thing. It's not really what's going on here. Uh, in when, the, when Jesus says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, that is what he wanted to hear. Now, having a paralyzed legs and having unforgiven sin were in his imagination and of everyone around him, those were the same thing. So for Jesus to say, I can forgive your sins, I can make you walk, I can make you clean again. These are all, in a way, synonymous terms. He's not drawing a distinction between them. And again, the point here is not that Jesus is saying sins are more important than physical illness. This is not the point. This is not the teaching moment that Jesus is making. In fact, he will make it later on. In another place, he will say illness is not related to sin. But in this story, this is not the teaching moment. The teaching point is I can do it. I'm the one. Not the temple. Remember, we already saw a man who the temple wouldn't cure or wouldn't allow to be back into the society. And Jesus does it. And now he's doing it again. I can do it. But in order that you should know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. Verse 10. Son of Man is another key phrase. Well, the first thing is it comes from Daniel and Ezekiel, uh, the one like a son of man. In Daniel 7, there's a prophecy that this one like the son of man comes and he's given the authority. And it's, I mentioned before, it's the sons of God are angelic, divine type beings who are given the rule over the world. And the story of the sons of God, the angelic starry hosts, is that basically they tend to do a bad job. The world isn't being run very well. They are rebelling against their rightful duties. They are not doing what the Lord of the hosts of the starry skies has told them to do. And in the Jewish cultural Old Testament imagination, these sons of God are being replaced by a son of man who comes and he gets the authority instead. And son of man means human it, there's a title to it, but there's also a, a description of just a human being. And there is, what you have to know, I think, is that there's ambiguity baked into this title. It's not like everybody around Jesus in the moment understood exactly what he meant, and that the only reason we're confused is because 2,000 years have passed. I think when Jesus adopts the phrase Son of Man, he's adopting a phrase that is deliberately obtuse it has multiple meanings it has a daniel 7 uh overtone absolutely but even then that doesn't actually solve the mystery who is the son of man what is the son of man and jesus takes this as his title for himself and then elsewhere he's going to give it to his disciples as well so anyway he's the son of man and he tells the man to take up his mat and walk and the people are astonished. Again, their world is shaken, right? Their world is rocked. And they say, we have never seen the like. And Jesus goes out again beside the sea, verse 13. And the whole oklos, the whole unwashed, unlettered mob come to him and he taught them. And as he was passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collection house. And he says to him, 
Follow me. Have faith in me. Be seen to be with me. And getting up, he followed him. All right, tax collectors. A tax collector is not a tax collector. The tax collector in the New Testament is not somebody who works for the Inland Revenue Service. It's not somebody who works for a government tax collection agency. The tax collector in the New Testament world is a Jewish person who's been set up by Romans to collect money on behalf of the ruling empire at the expense of the subjected citizens. You're a race traitor. If you're a tax collector, you're a race traitor. There's a whole lot of um, financial corruption going on with tax collectors, but it was more than just financial. You could have been the most scrupulous tax collector in the land and absolutely kept honest your books honestly and still have been an unclean, unworthy race traitor. The tax collector and the sinner weren't just tax collector sinners because they were corrupt. It's because of what they were doing and who they were betraying. And Jesus was identified with them over and over and over again. And it happened that he reclined at the table in his house and many tax collectors and sinners reclined along with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many and they followed him. Um, another point here. Verse 15, there were many disciples. We've got to stop thinking of the Jesus movement as Jesus and 12 men wandering across the land and maybe some women trotting along with the packed lunch. The Jesus movement had thousands of people at various times connected to it. There are thousands of people swarming over hillsides to be with him. We're going to get healing, uh, feeding of the 4,000, feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the sick. There are crowds of people chasing after Jesus. There are more than 12 disciples. There are 70 disciples at one point, or 72. There are disciples described as a large crowd. Anyone who followed Jesus was a disciple, but he did choose 12 apostles or 12 special inner group. That is true. But the Jesus movement was not just Jesus and 12 guys. When Rome and when Jerusalem looked at Jesus, they saw somebody whose claim to kingship was credible. He credibly had crowds on his side. He credibly had leaders under him. He had the support of a lot of different types of people from lots of different spheres of society. And he had these uh, women who were uh, the patrons of the movement. They were wealthy. They were supporting the movement. He had uh, men who were, were leaving their, uh, their econ economic stations to follow him. So there was a disruption. So we know that James and John, fishermen, they leave everything to follow Jesus. What we've got here is we've got economics, social class, um, Racism, racial boundaries, any, any Samaritan or Gentile that comes to Jesus. Uh, military differences, so Romans like Jesus sometimes and he heals their servants and their children. Um, 
we are getting a movement that is disrupting and distorting all the normal forms of life. Jesus' claim to starting a new kingdom was credible. By the way, you don't kill a man and twelve just because he has 12 people walking around the wilderness telling each other to be nice to each other. That's not why Jesus had to die. They're at the table with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And the Pharisees, seeing that he eats with sinners and tax collectors, say to his disciples, Does he eat with these tax collectors? And Jesus says, I'm going to be, those who are strong have no need of a physician, but those who are ill, I came not to call the upright, but the sinners. And then you get a story here about about fasting. So again, John the Baptist disciples and the Pharisees were both practicing fasting. And remember I mentioned that a lot of the story of Mark is the story of how the movement of Pharisaical and John the Baptist type disciples are moved over into the Jesus camp. And you start to see this here. And you get this story about, well, why don't you fast? And Jesus says, can the sons of the bride chamber fast while the bride is with them? And then he talks about sewing patches of unfulfilled cloth onto new onto old garments and uh, and not putting new wine into old wineskins. And essentially, these are idioms for, I think you could sum it up by saying, get with the program. Read the signs of the time. Get your act in order. Do things appropriately. It's not that Jesus is saying fasting is bad and must be destroyed. He's saying fasting isn't the appropriate thing to do right now. Maybe that time will come later. Or it's not that new wine or old wine is bad. It's not that old cloth or new cloth are bad. It's that you need to use the right tools at the right time with the right people. So this is a a story or an anecdote or a parable about being appropriate. And Jesus is with us, so don't act as if he's not. And then you're going to see this happen again, verse 23. And it happened that as he passed through the fields of grain on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to pluck the grain. And the Pharisees said, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? The Pharisees owned the grain. Any grain that was in the field that hadn't been plucked yet, uh, was owned by the Pharisees. So the disciples here are, they're breaking the Sabbath, but they're also stealing and they are also trespassing a little bit. Why are they doing this unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus reminds them about David, about acting when he was in need and hungry, how he entered the house of the God and he ate the loaves of the bread. And then Jesus says in verse 27, he says to them, the Sabbath, the Sabbath came about for the sake of humans, not humans for the sake of the sabbath the sabbath was made for humans not humans for the sabbath this is an example here of i probably will talk about it later but this is an example of jesus putting something in its place part of the 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 authority and rule and creative nature remember jesus is an agent of creation He's a king who's also the creator. And part of his role in the gospel here is to put things back in their right place. This is not a destructive act. He's not saying Sabbath is evil and must be destroyed. He's saying Sabbath has a purpose and I'm going to put it back in its place. Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for Sabbath. 
And this is an example here of later uh, New Testament books are going to use the language of powers and principalities to talk about this kind of activity, which is, which is the Christian or Jesus's authority over powers, faceless powers which influence our lives. Paul will refer to powers and principalities as religious traditions and habits at some points in Colossians 2, for example. And the idea here is that these faceless powers, these traditions or habits or um, inherited privileges that we're born into that have guided our actions, the new Christ response to them is not that they are stupid and pointless. It is that they have taken over too much. They have burst their bounds. They need to be put back in the box in order to serve humanity rightly. And Jesus is always doing that. He's always taking human traditions and he's putting them back in their place. And he does that here with the Sabbath. Thus, the Son of Man, the true human, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, I am very happy to be seeing my good friends Sean McCoy and Chris Marchand yet again. They join me in the tent to discuss more of Mark. And we have just been looking at Mark chapter 2, which has a whole lot of goodies in it. Chris, what were you thinking about Mark chapter 2? Well, the first thing that I wanted to bring up was, just like you said to do, I brought my uh, David Bentley Hart translation. David Bentley Hart. And um, I also brought, just because I always feel bad, I, I brought my N.T. Wright translation as Brilliant. well with me. And I, I sometimes I put them next to each other on the shelf just to see if the, like steam and smoke starts to arise, just to see <laughs> how they're on the shelf next to each other. Anyway, I, I appreciate you bringing in different translations. I don't know how other people feel about that. Um, I, I, had a, I had a Bible study with my own church where we would read the same passage every day as an exercise. Oh yeah. And so to break my monotony, I would just read a bunch of different translations just yeah. to, you know, so it's just, it's fun to do that. So that, yeah. That's and I, I'm always a bit, I'm always hesitant whenever you get somebody who overconfidently says, this is a bad translation or this is an evil translation. Like, well, no, it was made by a committee of people trying their best. <laughs> they all know better than I do about it. Like, it's not it's not that one is evil and one is good it's just that yeah every everything changes sometimes context changes sometimes new information emerges uh, there's all sorts of reasons why a translation might be slightly different than another one <laughs> what did you think about mark 2 okay so chris in this age this day and age of political turmoil and uh plagues sweeping the nation and oh and phones going off in our pockets <laughs> about it <laughs> How does Mark 2 speak to you, my friend? So uh, in, in recent episodes, in some ways, when we've approached this, we, we've kind of, Sean and I have said, oh, how are we going to challenge Stephen today? Right. And I, I was feeling something a little bit different and, and in a way to, to challenge myself. Okay. And when you started talking about this, the crowds, the word oklos. Yeah, right. And, and I started to think, oh, that made me uncomfortable. Okay. Um, and... And it made me have to process through how I approach the people around me. 
Okay. And it, and it made me realize that I don't approach the people around me like Jesus. Okay. I, I newsflash. Right. Well, <laughs> and it's very convicting. Um, okay. So for me, there are many, many crowds we could say. Uh, maybe there's uh, ultra leftist people that want actual government uprising. And I have to, and yeah. I actually know some people like that. Right. Yeah. I actually know some people. I go, okay, well, how do I deal with these people? They, they think violence is the answer. So I, yes. I know some secular leftist people that know <laughs> that violence is the yeah. answer. It's absolutely to them. Position. Yeah. And, uh, and then, then I also have uh, conservative friends that will never see past um, voting for certain candidates to end abortion. Right. And there's a whole throng, there's a crowd, yeah. <laughs> there's the masses. And I think what I'm dealing with is my own resentment and my own frustration with the quote crowd. Okay. And, um, and you right. said something on social media this week that was really fascinating to me. It was on, it was on Justin uh, Bronson Berenger's uh, page. Oh yeah. Here, I'm, I'm going to quote, I'm going to quote Stephen Backhouse here. Uh, I think uh, uh, Justin says, what's our responsibility right now? And okay. your, your, your comment was, we should, Christians who are appalled by nationalism should right. not treat Christians who are nationalists the same way Christian nationalists would treat them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and nah. and I, what, I'm, what I'm hearing all in all of this is this call to, con like, to con continually call people to Jesus to I, I my tendency would be to like just say forget the crowd screw the crowd i hate they're all um maybe the word is they're the they're the deplorables whoever they happen to be yeah and i'm seeing jesus point us to a different way and i'm being challenged by that um yeah so what was uh what crowd do you think you're a part of Oh my! Yeah, I was thinking about. I'm I'm part of the 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 elitist crowd that thinks that we should read David Bentley Hart's translation of the Bible. Right. You know, so I'm I'm educated and I have my elitist separatist view of society and I can kind of hold away away from people. And so I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm feeling like I'm uh, I'm too isolated in my own in my own world. So. I mean, one thing I would say that the Oclos is not just a generic word for any crowd, though, right? It's specifically the powerless crowd. They're, mm. they're uneducated and they're powerless. They don't have a voice. They don't know what they're doing. They live day to day. They're also the, they're also the poor, by the way. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor, it's also the Oclos. They're the ones who don't know where their resources are coming from, from day to day. Uh, so that's the crowd that was most associated with Jesus. So... I guess I would ask you who, who in your so, life is powerless. So it, I, I don't know if this counts, but it's, and, and I, you know, forgive me for mentioning too specific with the election, but it's a big thing in America. We're trying I, to stay it, evergreen, but how can we avoid the election? Which by the way, as of recording, we don't yet know who the actual president is. <laughs> God. Um, it, it's this question that comes up in America, which is, yeah. Why are dishing, why are why are um, poor white people voting for Trump or the GOP, the the the, the Republican Party, when right. they actually don't help any of their interests? Yeah, right. And those are the people in my elitist white way that I want to judge. Yeah, right. And uh, that, that's a big crowd of people that I really, in some ways, I feel like I don't come in contact with enough. But they're yeah, all and I think. All parallels are anachronistic, okay, first of all. But I think there's something to be said. When you mentioned the word deplorables, there is something there of the Oclos. Yeah. Okay. 
the non let, let's be really like i know i i fully aware that i'm being i'm making broad brush strokes here but right un uneducated or people without prospects people who maybe have been living in generational poverty people who are angry people who feel that all power structures abuse them and take advantage of them that would also fit an oculus example yes yeah. so that is the group that was drawn to jesus it's also worth remembering though that that jesus does not affirm the oculus in all of its ways in fact it's the same oculus that is going to start to shout crucify him in a couple chapters time okay yeah. so it's not like it's a big rubber stamp on angry violent fear-mongering paranoid groups Jesus is not affirming them. They are the people that are coming to him and he is healing them and feeding them and teaching them. And eventually he's going to not give them what they want. They want the nationalist folk hero and he is not going to do it. And they are going to say, crucify him, crucify him. So let's also add that into our story. <laughs> Even if we do identify certain groups today with the Oculus, let's also remember what the Oculus did to Jesus. Yeah. And, and so maybe I'm Peter in the sense of after the resurrection, after the crucifixion, how do I, do I still minister to these people? Right. These are the ones exactly. that killed Christ. Exactly. That, that maybe, maybe that's the question that I'm contemplating. Yeah. And, and, you, and uh, I mean, they are one of the groups that kill Christ. There's the popular crowd kills Christ, the Pharisees who are the elite, they kill Christ and the Romans who are the Gentile overlords, they kill Christ. So there are three groups. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the axe is is pretty clear like it doesn't hide any of that and it yeah. and Stephen and peter and paul they're always standing up in front of angry groups saying you killed christ <laughs> and sometimes they're talking to romans sometimes they're talking to pharisees and sometimes they're talking to the angry mob uh so they, they haven't hidden that so yeah their mission field was to the people that they knew rejected jesus yeah which is relevant to us right today chris i mean you're you're an American minister in an, in an American country. Your mission field is people who have heard the name of Jesus and have rejected the way of Jesus. That is your mission field. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, I have been taught in a sense of growing up within an apologetics focused church is if, if somebody disagrees with you and, and they're untruthful, then I kind of put them almost in a moral box where, right. oh, you're the wrong people. You're the bad people. And I still see people doing that. So like if somebody's truly, truly racist, well, then yeah. I have to reject them. I have to um, cancel culture them in a sense. Like I can't associate with somebody who's racist. And, uh, right, and, right. and so it's a real struggle to me. If, if the masses that I perceive are, are of a certain ideology, yeah. in a way, my, some of my Christian friends don't want me to, my more uh, liberal right. Christian friends wouldn't want me to associate with those people. And I'm yeah. contemplating, yes, how do I minister with people that I truly in, in, in significant ways disagree with? Well, how do you do it? I mean, how are you trying to do it right now? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't, I don't feel, I, I feel like I just live my life. I'm living a simple life. I'm trying to be faithful with my family. Yeah. There's people around me that I talk with. That, that's, that's how I do it. Well, uh, it's simple. It's a relationship. Listen, this is that fellow traveler idea, which we just keep banging on and on about on this podcast, that Jesus the, the Oculus are swarming over the hillsides to be with him, but he doesn't identify with the Oculus. He identifies with the 12. Hmm. So the people are all around him. He is ministering to them, but he's not 
of them. He doesn't become one himself. He doesn't affirm them in their savage illiteracy. In fact, he draws 12 people out and says, okay, let's, let's do this thing. So you, you, you banding together with people of peace, that's, that's okay. I think I, that's the way that that seemed to happen. Yeah. Um, but that you're not, you're not waging a war against the Oklos. No. So, no. and that's the thing is, is if they happen to do that, because they're, you know, people are always talking about these uh, civil war, cultural wars, like true wars, like it's no longer just ideological wars. It's like, yeah, we're, there's actually going to be violence. Yeah. I, I'm not going to been already. That. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I'm not going to engage whoever that Oculus tends to be the crowd in that sense. I'm not going to engage with them in that sense. I'll, I'll yeah. be on the side of we have to talk. We have to ha we have to bring peace to whatever that is. Yeah. You know, I, I see it's not that hard for me to see present day evangelicals who might think of themselves as aggrieved and powerless. They think of themselves as the Oclos, but they're really not. I, there has never been a group with as much power, concentrated wealth and power as there is North American evangelicals right now, right? So, and their, their man currently is in the White House and, and they have presidents constantly have to court them in order to get into power. This is not a powerless group of people. And... Mm -hmm. So, so identifying with the Oculus will often actually mean identifying with people who are actually oppressed and actually out of power, not people who think they are oppressed and out of power, which, which is where Oculus, which is why the Pharisees were so anti-Jesus. One of the main things we're told is that they, they didn't like the fact that the Oculus were running after him. And this comes out plainly. All the world is going over to him or all the people are with him. And they're talking about this, these crowds of people. They don't like that association because they are self-protecting their own privilege and their own power. And they don't like losing it. So I think Oclos, we can shift. <laughs> we can shift, can't we, on our, whether we are Oclos or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's more in Mark 2. So, Sean, what were you thinking about? When, when Jesus heals a paralytic and they rip the ceiling off the off the well, uh, roof or just calls well, Levi. I, yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's so much, I, I kind of want to step back a little bit too on. So as the listeners going through this with us, who, as we know through our conversations with them and even ourselves, that we just were talking, listening to Chris, the real struggle here uh, isn't really on the comprehension. I think around, you know, what, what certain things that Jesus said mean or where, where the, right. I mean, there's translation issues and stuff like that. And there's all the, there's always that, there's always that uh, the hill to climb, if you will, we have to, as, as followers, constantly kind of gut check as far as that kind of stuff. And I get all that. Hmm. But I think, I think the question is, what do we do with these stories? It's kind of, it's kind of the place that, and in, in my heart and mind, as I'm listening to you talk hmm. and, you know, cause so what does all this mean? How do I, how do I address this with my racist uncle or with my own racism? And I, and right, I really right. do think that we have to, we have to start in the hardest place and that's not with this uneducated, illiterate, uh, uncultured friend, uh, co-worker or even the crowd as you as Chris was calling him, I was in my head I, I have such a you know such a, a reaction to the crowd now just because it seems to be this mindless mob yeah. because it is, well, it is and then yeah, it's just it the ad hominems and it's just the lack of clarity or even you know I mean it, it was it, to go back a little bit on the presidential side you saw it in the debates you go back and watch them I mean you had a couple of people that the best they could do is basically just throw these generic 
overwhelming that if, if half the stuff they said was true about each other, they should both be in jail. And so right. it's kind of this. Yeah. So then I think as a listener and as somebody who's on the other end of it, you're kind of like, well, what am I, this is, these are the guys running for the president of the United States. Here's political leaders. Here's, here's religious leaders. So-and-so gets on the television or on the radio or on a podcast and says stuff that you just find so outlandish. And so it, the, what, where that starts, I think become a little bit uh, degenerative in our own faith and spirit is what is going on here? What is the result of this? And how, I mean, uh, to what extent do I have to go through to understand this? And then what do I even, how do I even apply it? And so I kind of want to speak to the listener. Yeah. A little bit around. Well, I mean, one of the features, I think I mentioned one of the features of the Oculus, another way to talk about them was sheep without a shepherd. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how Jesus refers to them. Uh, or you could say uh, soldiers without a general. The idea is just think of like a group of people milling around basically being easily led as soon as somebody jumps up and says follow me then the crowd just swarms towards them like zombies hearing a loud noise and sure and that is essentially the one of the features of the oculus was that they were an unruly mob that if you could harness that power you would be harnessing something quite dangerous or potentially dangerous in the land and i think it's that easily led nature which is maybe something we need to be aware of. And yes. the easily led nature of the people was not a good thing. They they get, it's what kills Jesus in the end. Right. Right. They get easily swayed very quickly by people who say, well, do you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas? And they go, we want Barabbas. And well, so, so let me ask so that's that easily led nature that I, I think is very applicable today. So, so, where, so for them, for the modern evangelical, for the environmentalist liberal, for whoever, yeah. pick your favorite label, what do you yeah. think is the undercurrent? What is the underpinning thing that motivates them to then step into that? So are your itching ears hearing what your itching ears want to hear? On and if they level, are, that's a warning sign. <laughs> to sure. like, wait a second, let's, let's pause. <laughs> so, so maybe I was, so, so I was, Maybe so. Tell me, this is this is my perspective on where, where. So yes, they're hearing what they want to hear, but the reason they're hearing it is there's two big words that I constantly listen for in turn or feelings I listen for in terms of conversation. And somebody's trying to convince me of something, and that is, are they using fear, and are they yeah. using shame and or yeah. shame yeah. to motivate me? Yes, right? yes. So back to the back to this group, the Whiting Valley, you know, Megan Control, super successful, never had a life like that, like we have, and that's exactly true. Well, how can they feel powerless? You're thinking to yourself in the you know, the, the, the disconnect of like, you've, don't you get, you've never been more powerful. You've yeah. never, you've never, what we have at our disposal is amazing. And so yeah. the real, the, I think if whatever's motivating you is fear, even, yeah. even our own around, right. How we look at this and go, Oh my gosh, if, if president Trump is reelected, Oh, what will right? happen to us? And then, you yeah. know, Joe Biden, or if, what if, what if the, what if, you know, Brexit, you know, finally, Oh my gosh, yeah. with the fear, yeah. or what if, what yeah. if the, you know, foreigners come or what if they don't leave or what if they stay yeah. or what if they go or what if my, you know, the fear, it's always there. It's know? always if, there because it's the fear of losing what you think is rightfully yours. Correct. correct. And correct. Jesus identifies that head on, you know, in the Hi. book of Matthew, he does, he says, essentially, he says, don't, <laughs> don't clutch tightly to what is rightfully yours, even when it's rightfully yours. Right. So, so that thing that plays out into as you're sitting there with this person or people or whatever yeah. this medium that's in, in your social media, pick your favorite medium, and it's inundating you with all these reasons that are making every part of your body say, No, I should be scared to death. Yeah. If that that person yeah. is the sheriff of that county, if that person is the president of that company, yeah, what in the world? And, and to your points, that that's where the work is. I think we so to the listener, yeah. all that to say, because this is this is the only place that I can impact. 
And that is, what am I doing? Yeah, exactly. And of course, I fight this all the time myself. <laughs> of course yeah. I do, right? I'm being motivated by fear, fear and anger and hurt pride. And of course I am. Of course I am. And I just got to recognize in those moments, I'm being very Oculus-like. Yeah, so, so I think, I think in terms of just and truly recognize that, and then what? Do you, how do you? Then how do you grow from that? And then how do you? How do you live in that tension, knowing that today wasn't any better than it was yesterday in terms of my relationship with that person? What's What's the example we're given that's going to stand out ultimately? And what if, what, what just gestures of humanity, just gestures of kindness, and it seems so simplistic, and we, yeah. then we start to get so we're done with all this, you know, unicorns and rainbows. But at the end, man, I'm like, but it's, no, it's, it's it, just that it, it is perfect love casts out fear this is how you know what love is that you lay down your life for your friends right it's, it's, so I, so it's, I would just, it's I, that easy i mean it's that straightforward it's not easy to do but it's not right. hard to understand right it's not right. a mystery it's like right. if, when you lay down your life for your friends you are not clutching tightly to what you think your rights are you are trying to seek out something for them yeah and so, that's what the early christians tried to do that's what all that mutual submission business in Ephesians 5 is all about. Or, or in Philippians, where you're, you're not trying to grasp power for yourself, but you're trying to set a limit on your own will and give it away to other people. That's what this is about, is not being driven by fear of losing your control or, or your power. And it's willingly, so uh, they also really want you to know that Jesus was totally innocent. So the gospels really care about that. And they also really want you to know that Jesus was not enthralled to these powers. He willingly does it. So in John, he says, I willingly lay down my life. So even though all these powers are ranged against him and they're shouting for him to die, there's a sense in the gospels that Jesus sort of knew it was going to happen or allows it to happen. And he doesn't fight it. He willingly submits to these evil things. And, uh, and that's part of what they're trying to show is that he wasn't clutching tightly to his rights, even though even in his day, his rights were, were evident. Like he's found innocent. We're skipping ahead to other parts of Mark, but right. Pilate finds him innocent. The temple, can't, the, the temple courts can't actually find him guilty. Uh, he's portrayed as innocent even by his own enemies. And they kill him anyway. Right. And I think that's important because it, it, it speaks to so many people. I think so many of our individual experiences around, is, is this world linear? If you do this, does this happen? No, is it right. always that way? It doesn't, and see? Yeah. And that's the paradox that we're kind of like, but, but this is his example of saying, yeah, it's not going to be, it's not going to be that. It's not going to be linear. And like Jesus said, it, those who lose their lives will find them. Right. It's like perverse and ironic that it's not linear. You think by building up a fortification and circling the wagons and clutching tightly to your rights and agitating for your freedoms and religious liberties that you will protect yourself. And Jesus is, says the opposite. You actually find yourself once you no longer base all of your moral and intellectual energy on keeping yourself. And if you look from a historical perspective, you're talking about the United States, just being a history buff. If you look at the major, go back to Rome or uh-huh. going back to England during its time, you know where where it got where it where it started to just to lose it was internally. It's, it was the so they tried to build this humongous wall around all this stuff that they yeah. had. Yeah. 
and it becomes this, you, you start to die within. And I think that yeah, that's right. also a metaphor for our own journey around this. I can't let go of this stuff that I have. I can't let go of this. I have to be right. I have to have the right thing. Yeah, I need yeah. to let this person know what's wrong. And if you can let that, because if that's going to, it's going to destroy you from the inside or at the very least limit your ability to become intimate with what, with, with God and what the divine wants you to go through now. I think then, then you're missing yeah. it. And then it becomes, you're just so distracted by all these other things that you fail to see the beauty of what is around you and what's possible because you're, because you're just too filled with fear. Chris, what are some of your thoughts about the rest of Mark 2? Any stories jump out at you? Jesus questioned about fasting. Jesus calls Levi to him. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, I was interested in your your concept of, of Jesus putting the Sabbath in its place. Okay. And uh, maybe I don't know. Is there is there any more that you can you can say on that? In the sense you 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 brought that up in the context of other things that you brought up uh, with our earlier series of the powers exactly. and principalities. It's a power and principality example here. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious. Um, and maybe the Sabbath is just the little example, but uh, I don't know. Is there, is there any right, more? The Sabbath you... is an example of the of a principality. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I would like people to read to just notice that how much more political some of these texts are than they might have thought. So we see the word Sabbath and we instantly think Sunday morning religion. Well, first of all, it wasn't a Sunday. <laughs> and second of all, it wasn't religion, quote unquote. It was shaping your way of life. I mean, it was governing when you could eat and when you couldn't eat and when you could work and when you couldn't work. And the Pharisees owned all the grain on the ground. So this we're talking about trespassing and legal rights here. We're not just talking about religion. And, uh, and the Sabbath itself is a human institution that was grown too big and was losing its way. This is an example of Jesus putting law and legality and common sense in its place, not just yeah. religion. Yeah. So, so I do think that is helpful to bring that up. Um, a, a parallel example is a, a few weeks ago, um, um, every year I tend to commemorate uh, the death of my favorite musician, Rich Mullins. And Oh, yeah. Um, you commemorate I, I, what you celebrate or you remember. <laughs> well, you know, I just, I'm part of a lot of online communities where we yeah. where like when his death comes up, we just we, we talk about it and we okay. share things about his life. So, yeah like a saint's day in a way. Yeah. And um, I, I brought up one of his albums that was really dear to me. And I talked about the political nature of it. And um, the whole album is really about, I would, I would say it's about the church being this alternative culture, this alternative society. Okay. And somebody, somebody called me out. They're saying, they said, how could you ruin this guy's right. album that, right, right. You, know, you you have taken this and made this political you've ruined this for everybody right, uh, right. by talking about these things and in my brain i'm going but it's there it's in all the lyrics it's it's and so i'm, I'm making a parallel with yeah. with the gospel of mark here so yeah, yes sure. it does as an evangelical christian when i think sabbath i think oh you know worshipful things holy yeah. things yeah uh, um and for me to make the leap to go, yes, holy things are connected to political things. Yeah, that's that's a real big deal for me. So uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm, you know, it. I'm I'm coming along, Stephen. I'm think I'm 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 starting to make these connections. Well, it's like to say everything is political, in some yeah. way. It really is, and it might not have to do with vote for the red teams. The blue team doesn't win, but it it does mean that you are part of the weave of the world part of society and that is a political thing so even what you do on a sunday morning is political 
communion is political, Chris. Every time you give the Eucharist, you're doing basically one of the most political acts you can do is have an open table where time stops. And you say time is not revolving around the rise and fall of nations or the progress of history. Time is revolving around this moment right now where all the saints are gathered. Everyone who was alive and everyone who will be alive is all gathering right now at this table where Jesus has become a body, right? And that's, there's like, it's like a time travel. The communion table is like a time travel machine, which centers all of reality around one point in time and not in whoever happens to be on the right side of the progress of history. Let's wind down. I'm looking forward to seeing you next week. You're going to go away and you're going to listen to Mark 3, 1 to 27. And uh, hopefully by then we'll have some clarity about uh, what we're doing in this world. (laughs) But until then, friends, I'm going to say goodbye. I'm going to love you and leave you and wish you well. See you soon. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about 10th Theology at www.10thTheology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.